Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, hey, Taylor. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. The year is 2021. Everything from 2020 is behind us now. Uh, theaters have reopened and, and the world is, is beautiful and we can go do anything we want, right? Overnight, it all just got better, right? Is that what happened? <laughs> I think that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for the opposite of turning into a pumpkin at midnight. I just closed my eyes. I tried real hard to just imagine everything would just go away and things mm-hmm. would be better. And I opened my eyes and it didn't happen. It didn't. But, hey, things aren't that bad. You're in Colorado seeing your folks for the holiday. Um, we had some snow here on Christmas. It's not so bad. And we have movies to watch and discuss. Yes, we are rescreening Perfect Blue today. Uh, before we dig into Satoshi Khan's directorial debut, let's go ahead and do a first impression of our next rescreening title, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. The Railroad. The Boomtowns. A new life. And the promised land. Once upon a time. That was the trailer for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. What do you think? Your facial expressions, what I think. Well, you'll you'll have to fill me in a little bit on what you just saw, because I, I was having technical difficulties. I didn't hear anything. I got no sound. I think we aligned on which trailer we were watching, but I heard nothing. So I'm going purely off visuals for this first impression of Once Upon a Time in the West. Um I don't think I've seen any Sergio Leone movies. I wouldn't describe Westerns, be them American Westerns or spaghetti Westerns as a genre or kind of film that I naturally gravitate towards. I'm kind of hoping that by diving into this one, that might, it might broaden my taste a bit if I'm lucky. Um, yeah. So I am, I am hopeful. I'll put it that way. Um, what are you thinking? Well, I heard it. There you um, go. I have, the same lack of familiarity with Leone, you know, I, the most Leone I've seen is I watch Clint Eastwood movies and I watch Quentin Tarantino movies. Um, I have heard that I believe it was this film, if not a different film. Um, gosh, what is his name now? It's, I had just thought of this point and now I'm forgetting it. He made a uh, Yojimbo and hidden fortress. Oh yeah. Kurosawa. Kurosawa. I heard Kurosawa watched like this movie, I believe it was, or it was another of Leone's movies. And he said, that's a good movie. Too bad you copied it. 
That's right. I think it's, yeah, Yojimbo, that there are some like shot for shot remakes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's this one. You're right. I'm not sure if it's this one or maybe if it's full of dollars, but yeah, I mean, maybe uh, the homework for this one could involve some Japanese cinema as well. Hopefully. Um, so, I, I mean, when you're stealing, if you're stealing from the best, I I have a feeling I'm going to like it is, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, I, I, like I said, could hear and the um the dialogue is delightful it's cheesy but serious um this is kind of exactly what i was hoping for without knowing what i was hoping for so mm-hmm. i'm i'm thrilled at the prospect of watching this title um and it's regret regrettable that you couldn't hear the uh hilarious sound effects of those guns and those bullets yeah i'm not sure what happened this is what I get for taking a week off, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. out of practice. Mm-hmm. You don't even know how to watch YouTube anymore. I know. Um, well, all right. That is our first impression for once upon a time in the West, which will be our next rescreening title. Let's talk about perfect blue. <laughs> All right, Michael, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm going to briefly read a a quick definition here of the persistence of vision from the Oxford Dictionary of Film Studies. Okay. This is in relation to... uh, the the early stages of animation and what exactly the technical side of what is occurring is in animation. Persistence of vision is the capacity of the eye to maintain an image on the retina for a moment after the image has disappeared. If successive images follow quickly enough, these will be perceived as a single, continuously moving image. Right? Pretty simple to understand, but when you're doing it with drawing, it is very, it's similar, but it's a very different process for the artist because they have to be thinking about what they want moving in the picture, what they want to do with the depth of field, um, that type of thing. And I'm very excited to talk about one of the best directorial debuts I've ever seen with you in Perfect Blue. Me too. Yeah. And just to, to build on that, I mean, I think it's arguably just the foundation of cinema too, right? You know, mm-hmm. when you think about those really early kind of like optical toys and devices where you just spin something and, uh, you know, with some cutouts on a wheel, you would see yes, something move. Exactly. Same idea. Um, same base yeah. principle. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think from your introduction, it's safe to say you enjoyed this film. Is that correct? I, I, hmm. Yes, I think I did enjoy it, at least the first time. I, I did watch it for the second time um, this morning, right before we started recording, and it's still great. But the it's kind of like saying you love Black Swan. Mm. A little, it's You can only love that. I, I mean, I what I'll say is you can't love some of the scenes that occur in this film, most notably the rape scene. It's very... Mm. Uh, affecting at least for me i it was very uh 
gauche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Black Swan. Perhaps we could start by saying that I was not very familiar at all with Satoshi Kon before diving into Perfect Blue, but it doesn't take much more than a simple Google search of his name to see just how influential of a director he was, mm-hmm. um, especially on directors like Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan. Those are like the two you just see listed in article after article um, when you read about um, Satoshi Kon. Um yeah, I, so. I particularly, as I was watching um, Paprika more, more than any of the others, what I was thinking about Mother and just how the uh, the duality of a single character can be played with, even in live action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's funny that just in our first impression of Once Upon a Time in the West, we were talking about shot for shot remakes of things you can mm-hmm. very easily find on youtube some shots out of requiem from from for a dream i think and mm-hmm. maybe black sun as well where aronofsky is basically just doing kind of shot for shot um variations on stuff out of perfect blue um he clearly enjoyed it as well yes um so i'll, I'll just share a, a mini aside that i i think is uh at least a fun anecdote tell me if you agree with me when i was a child i enjoyed cartoons I, I remember somewhere between nine and 12 watching Princess Mononoke and some of the other Ghibli stuff that was really, really cutting edge, as well as the Animatrix and Linkin Park had started releasing some of their um, anime style music videos. And I remember at that age just wondering why they still made normal movies when it was so clear that animation could, could supersede everything you would want to do in a normal film because of these expert examples. And this is one of the movies that I'd never seen as a child. It just, to me, proves that animation can make better films, depending on what the subject matter is, than a real live shot film. Yeah, even at 10 years old, you, you suspected that this was perhaps the height of the medium. Well, it was more like a selfishness of like, why isn't everything a cartoon? This is clearly the best thing I've ever seen. Why are we settling for things that aren't the best thing I've ever seen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think Princess Mononoke was probably the first anime movie I ever saw. And I could not have told you who Satoshi Kon was at the time. I don't think I knew that name at all. But I think he very much deserves to be um, talked about in the same regard, even though they have very different interests, I think. Yes. Not that well, I have I seen mean, that much Maizaki, but... Uh, Cohen's been acquired by G-Kids, which, you know, that's Ghibli's distribution, essentially, here in America now as well. So it, mm-hmm. I, I do think that they are, you know, more than ever part of the same discussion um, in America because, from our perspective, it's just Japanese anime. Yeah. Period. Yeah, it's kind of tragic to compare because I don't know how many movies Miyazaki made, but it feels like there were a lot, like 10 plus, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he made um, more than four. Maybe, and Connell yeah, exactly. had to make four before he passed. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I read he passed away in 2010, and arguably it seems like he might have had a lot left in him. Um, mm-hmm. He was arguably just getting going, which is yes. really sad. What was his last film? Was it Paprika? I think it was Paprika, yeah, in yeah. like 2006 or so. Or late, yeah, mid, it, mid it definitely feels like he he had more to to do because um, in, in the interview that he has, it's very brief, like ten minute interview in the Blu-ray extras um, for Perfect mm. Blue. They're asking him these questions, and he's 
he you can tell he thinks that they're stupid questions, but he's trying to like answer them. And no matter what he says, he ends up going down his own philosophical rabbit hole of like the meanings of reality and how there's there's two different versions of the self and, and all that stuff. And, mm. um, you know, I think Paprika, he got closer to examining that idea than he did in Perfect Blue. But I think Perfect Blue is a, a better project. And he mm. uh, he himself described perfect blue in that interview not as a film but as an animation mm. project oh interesting i like that uh yeah and just I, I guess on the note of animation in general it really seems to me like the, his interests overall so well align with animation specifically like mm-hmm. this preoccupation with reality versus illusions and dreams and like that like that just seems so fitting for animation which is itself an illusion we we just mistake these drawn things for real real life uh people um yeah. it just and seems like like he, he knew which medium was the right one for his his um areas of interest yeah the venues in which he's telling a story i believe he said his background or no he didn't say the interviewer um informed me that the his background before animation was painting so he was a painter and then he came to anime storytelling um i have to imagine that that was probably during the boom that kind of happened after akira had its its high gross and then everybody Mm. wanted the action um Mm. but yeah i ended up watching all of his films um in the homework for this rescreening. Did you get to anything besides Tokyo Godfathers, which I, I did see you got to? I did Tokyo Godfathers. I did Millennium Actress. I haven't done Paprika yet. I really, I will definitely do Paprika. Uh, but this is definitely my favorite of the three I have seen so far. Millennium Actress being a close second. Um, what about you? Do you have a definitive ranking? I a definitive ranking feels very uh, inarticulate for this, but I, yeah, I will say you don't have to answer. Tokyo Godfathers is my least favorite, the one that I don't really want to rewatch, but I, I likely the most likely film that I will rewatch, even though I don't want to, just because it fits with Christmas holidays in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But I, I would say Paprika, I, I preferred over Millennium Actress. I don't know why, but I, I ended up really respecting that project, but not. Uh, closely identifying with it, whereas Paprika, I love it. Uh, I think more than I like Perfect Blue, but Perfect Blue is undeniably the best film of his collection here. And I think he maybe did some TV series as well. Mm-hmm. I, I see those on Letterboxd, but uh, yeah, just yeah, he, the he four features seem to a yeah. 360 minute project that had a bunch of directors. I don't know the backstory on that, but that was his first project somewhere in the early 90s. Uh, 95, 93, somewhere like that. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like the acclaim is primarily centered around the features. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- this is a film about a, a pop icon who has a team of agents and the agency determines that she should become an actress rather than continuing to be a pop star. Uh, mm. The, I, I think center of Satoshi Khan's film hinges on you believing any of that. Mm. And I, I particularly think that the introduction sequence, which is uh knockoff power Rangers mm. 
mm-hmm. it immediately just gets you in the animated world space in a very deft way. He doesn't ever call back to it, but it's just this really sweeping, engaging opening scene that, uh, you know, every uh, kid w- would enjoy, especially. And then we go into that that pop um, concert venue and the music there. The actual music is so good. It doesn't matter which version you watch. I just watched the Japanese version. Great. It's it's almost the same exact song, but with Japanese lyrics. Uh, the English version, just as great. I I can't believe how good that that song is that he got to build the film around. Yeah, and this is only the first, you know, 100 to 200 seconds of the movie that we're mm-hmm. talking about. But I think within those two scenes that you're talking about, he's laying out the themes of the movie right off the bat. We're sort of mistaking something unreal for something real, at least in within the context of the world of the movie. Yes. The Power Rangers turn out to be a performance. We're not actually in the world of Power Rangers. And then during that pop performance, there's that cross-cutting between her on stage, our main character, Mima, and her just kind of going about her life. Like she goes to the grocery, she's on Getting the train. Getting the moo cow milk. Don't forget about the moo cow milk if you watch the, the English version. The, the fish food. Um, and right off the bat, just that division of the onstage persona versus the private mm-hmm. her um, is, is laid out right off the bat. You know, this is only a 90 minute movie. I feel like it is it's very efficient in laying out its its themes and, and lays those two out right away. Well, it's uh, it's 80 minutes. Even shorter. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Thanks. <clears throat> um, I mean, that that is the introduction. This is a film that like Black Swan is impossible to talk about without giving away almost the entire film at Mm -hmm. minimum. But um, she eventually you come to understand has a psychological disorder of some sort in which she's separating two different identities um, that she views herself through. And that happens after she's renounced her pop image and is focused on becoming an actress. Um, she goes through the uh, first episode of a series that she's a part of, has very minimal lines, and then the writer writes her a part that's more crucial, and the show's going to be about her. But, as I mentioned earlier, that rape scene, <laughs> that brutal rape scene that is also, I, I, I think it's one of the most nuanced examinations that I've seen in animation of like uh, American cinema, I guess, right? Because mm-hmm. it starts out with the discussion. Jody, what's her name? Did it remember? Jody Foster. That's who he wants you to think of. But do you not remember that part where the agents trying to convince her to do the the rape scene while the woman who is very crucial to the plot, the other agent, sitting opposite the table. Oh, I don't think I remember that line. I thought you were asking me like uh, the actress in our in our world that, that also no, did no, a no, rape no, no. scene. Uh, so in the film, they're sitting at a table and she's in the middle of them. Uh, the the quote unquote camera. I'm just going to say camera yeah, from here on yeah. out. I'm not going to do quote unquotes. Uh, yeah. The camera is facing her in rear profile, and to her left is mm. the woman who features crucially to the plot as mm-hmm. we. Proceed. The manager. And, yeah. and to her right is uh, the other half of the agency there. And yep. he's trying to say that he already told them 
that she quit being a pop star so that she could be focused on acting and to her left arguing for not doing the rape scene. And she, mm-hmm. she, the blow up happens. She convinces her that she's going to do it. Um, and in that sequence, he says, all the, all the actresses that are up and coming do it. Remember mm-hmm. Jodie, what's her name did it. I got and, that, I got and it's just this quick allusion to American cinema, which I, you know, everything is kind of self-referential mm-hmm. in Satoshi Khan's uh, filmography, especially in, in films like Millennium Actress, you know, where it's literally referencing itself. Um, but w- once you get to that rape scene, the juxtaposition of the cut or the reshoot to the actual scene is just so brutal. Um, yeah. I, I, I can't think of another animated film that's quite that affecting. Yeah, and it's kind of amazing just how unsettling that scene is when it is not an actual mm-hmm. rape that we are watching. It is a staging of a rape, and it is just as, if not more, upsetting than so many rape scenes you might see in, in the movies. It's in, it's incredibly and, and you know troubling. what's happening, but and you know that all the angles you're seeing are actual fake in the film world cameras that are there for that and that everything's being acted out, but that doesn't at all allow your brain to not take it seriously for some reason. He figured out that, that perfect in between of letting you know that nothing is real while making you feel like everything is real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think uh, as they're staging, as we're getting ready to see the rape scene acted out, um, you hear some of the guys in the background. I don't think it's the director. Maybe it's just some crew members kind of joking around about it, kind of saying, Oh, this is going to be good. And I think those lines are kind of crucial in suggesting, you know, that this is all being staged for the pleasure of a male audience. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of why this becomes a critique of, you know, celeb, celeb, with female celebrities being sexualized is because it's for the benefit of men and, and watching this stuff. Without those lines, I think Satoshi Kone might risk kind of indulging in what he's criticizing. But I think it's pretty clear that it's for the benefit of these uh, men. All the men you see in the audience at the pop shows. Not there's like not a single woman there. It's all men. Um, yeah, that that definitely seems to be the kind of thrust of his critique i i agree mostly but i do think so while i agree that the the dialogue is absolutely crucial to the the point he's making in the critique the most powerful visual critique that he gives us is the cross cut from the actual rape occurring to the men surrounding her waiting for their turn and their jeering jowls and you know, the, the drool and the dribble and the, just how animalistic they look in, in those shots. The, the, nothing was quite as affecting as that cross cut to me in that sequence. Um, but the, the framing of the dialogue certainly gives it the, the first thrust of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the, the agent and the manager who are, are crying or sweating. I kind of forget what exactly it is they're going through at that moment oh, but they're clearly sweating, queasy by but it but the <laughs> manager uh she has an emotional breakdown at the end of it or yeah, like yeah 
the last time we see her, she gets up and is having an emotional breakdown and just rolling tears, rollicking tears, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, but just the fact that we kind of get this, um, the, 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 we we get the scene and we get the people watching this scene. I think it's kind of important how, how he mm-hmm. kind of lays out this scene between the viewers and the person being viewed, the person being kind of degraded and all of this for the, for the pleasure of, for the pleasure of others. Well, that's the, that's the third cut, right? When we actually go to the production uh, studio where we're seeing all the monitors with all the different mm-hmm. camera angles, um, mm-hmm. because that's what clues you, the viewer, into knowing all these different close-ups are actual cameras in the the film itself. Because before that, you're getting all these angles and you don't you don't know that because as you mentioned earlier, when Satoshi brings us in, we don't know quite what's real and what isn't real. And mm-hmm. this is uh, you know, one of the reversals of that, which is this is what's not real, but it feels so disturbingly real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's one of my favorite shots in the movie is when we first kind of go into that scene and it's that bank of television screens mm-hmm. that you're describing and um, that it just led me to think kind of about this, this the use of color in the movie and kind of what I felt like were the ideas behind that because I never really had a great answer for why it was called Perfect Blue. Um, and I'm still, I still don't really have one, but there's so many rather than primary colors there are all these secondary colors in the movie there are these pinks and purples and not usually just true blues or true reds even like the blood when people are being murdered is sometimes looks more purple than red but i kind of like these the idea that some of these colors are what you get when you mix two different colors like red and blue you get more of a pinkish or purple so i kind of that was my at least my own personal rationalization for why some of these visuals were fitting with with content um, it's all these kind of in between colors to match with these kind of um, divided, you know, mixed states of being for for Mima. Uh, but it's just it's beautiful looking while horrifying too. I like that the in between because that's exactly what the film is. It's in between. I yeah. I had meant to try to look up what the you know, uh, God, what is that? Now I'm forgetting what the term for were for the history of were uh etymological i meant to look up the etymology behind the words perfect and blue in japanese and i just never mm. got there um but for mm. me it, it's something like a, a like a melancholy the word blue here i'm i'm sure i've also yep. described yep. color but i i was thinking more about the the melancholia of it um and in that aspect and then i just kind of gave up on trying to make sense of it and just went with it's a perfect name for a movie that probably can't have a perfect name. I completely agree. I would not uh, explain it any more complexly than that. I like it. Um, So I accidentally used the word juxtaposition earlier before Uh I needed to use it because I need to use it a lot. All right. Do it. So perfect blue is a juxtaposition of the story of Mima uh, who was a pop star and is now attempting to become an actress. The show that she is cast in is a NCIS type of a show about a murder series sequence. And the uh, show ends up, depending on how it's cut and edited in, you don't know if you're watching reality or if you're watching her shoot scenes for the show. And 
the show reality ends up becoming more and more enmeshed, if you will, with the actual reality seemingly um, by chance until you come to understand the real um, reason for why what's happening occurs. The first uh, scenes of threat, I I believe, are um, after she... um, it, it might happen before she does the, the rape scene, but I think right after the rape scene, she gets a, a fax um, from someone hating her. But before that, at some point, there's a letter that explodes and mm-hmm. you're introduced to this new possibility of everyone around her dying, seemingly because they're associated with her and you don't know why. And the constant, once again, juxtaposition back and forth between that show and the show's plot and character and reality is really something. And anecdotally, just outside of that, because I'd watch Millennium, no, yeah, Millennium Actress before that, I kept getting confused that the actress in the show was the actress who was the older actress in Millennium Actress. Oh, I thought about the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I I had to like separate the tangents in my head. Like those are two different movies, man. It's not the same actress. (laughs) Well, yeah. And exactly. Because even within millennium actress, there is the main character whose story we're following, which is the Mm -hmm. elderly actress who's telling us about her career in the cinema. I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about the other actress. Who she, she's like acting with. And it's kind of like a, she's kind of who hates her and steals the, uh, the coin or whatever. Exactly. And then within the Perfect Blue, yeah, we get Mima and this other girl. Mm-hmm. Very confusing. Why must you do this, Satoshi Kong? And I, confuse us I so would badly. love to know if they are the same person. <laughs> I can empathize with your confusion. Um, so that is a very poor uh, introductory idea to the uh, convergence of a couple of realities. Um, separately, when we start the film, as you mentioned, there are lots of men. There is also a man who tends to have one eye covered by his hair and mm-hmm. and then one eye exposed. And he is uh, in the early shot attempting to possess her visually. Uh, he's holding mm-hmm. his hand up to his eye and she's dancing um, in the distance. But the way that he lines it up is essentially she's dancing on his hand. We don't get to... Uh, we don't see it first from that perspective. I don't think, I think we do end seeing that though. Um, and he comes to be kind of the fulcrum for who we think is perpetuating these crimes. The, the camera certainly wants us to believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that might be just the look of that character might be one aspect of the movie I don't appreciate quite as much. doesn't bother me a, a great deal, but he does have this kind of grotesque. He looks vaguely deformed. Mm-hmm. The, the face of this it, His of this eyes are, are very wide set. Um, additionally, the actual villain has mm. eyes that are very wide set. Yeah, yeah. Which, I don't know. To me, I mean, I think you could argue it's a little cheap to just deform the character to make them a little more grotesque, a little more scary. I don't know that I appreciate that quite so much. Um, but yeah, that is what it is. I, I, I think 
that character's relationship with Mima is maybe one of the more straightforward sort of ideas of the movie and his just sort of seemingly. obsession. Seemingly, perhaps. Yeah, he, you know, he just the idea that he is the obsessive fan who wants his idol preserved in a certain way forever. And he kind of fetishizes this youthful image that she once had and is maybe relinquishing. Um, so I don't think I read it the same because remember the actual perpetrator of, of these crimes is maintaining a website that claims to be the real Mima that is telling the real story of the real truth. And mm. you see him on his computer believing that he's reading the real, real, the true, true Mima. Uh -huh. Right. So he thinks that she is a different person. So it, I, I don't think that, it's just that he, I, I seemingly agree with most of your points, but I, I will say that there's a, there's a separate reinforcement in the world in which she is self-reporting, even though it's not her, that she is being abused and stuff. And that is, I think, what, what makes him go further than he would have otherwise. You know, I, I guess I thought he was upset and troubled by the fact that she was tarnishing her her image right isn't that he, what he screams he at her was, for? he 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 was and is but the person who incepted those ideas potentially would be our actual villain who's writing website posts about the writer forcing her to do things and be raped and stuff and that that mm. um that's not the real her the real her is this other thing Right. Because it's yeah. this other demented character who's writing these website posts that is um, creating that false definition that, that this person is then believing. I'm not saying that he wasn't delusional before that, but I'm saying these specific delusions he bought into weren't his own invention. Yeah, I think. OK, I think I, I think I follow you. Maybe I might have suggested that this I, the idea that he is the or represents the obsession of, of fans, obsessive fandom is not necessarily the some, something that the, that the movie thinks is, is wrong or villainous. Just he, he does not turn out to ultimately be the perpetrator, but right. he is so obsessive that he is susceptible to exactly. manipulate. Um, is maybe the better way to put it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There we agree. It's just about the, the nuance. Cause I don't, uh, I don't think that that was his point that, you know, these rabid fans end up always doing that. It's, yeah. it's kind of this, this externalizing of, um, form. And now we'll really spoil things, I guess. So if yeah. you don't, if you went this far and we're thankful that we didn't spoil the entire film, then you should stop listening now because we're going to spoil the entire film. All right, I hope and you go. turned it off. Um, okay, so there is the manager, as you were saying. And at some point, I've watched it twice now. I still don't know exactly when the breaking point is. She has a, a split personality, quote unquote, and begins to imagine herself as Mima. Mm -hmm. And she's the one that sends the faxes. She's the one that sends the, the letter that explodes. She's the one that is maintaining the website we were just talking about. And I was not prepared for that in my first watch. How about you? I was not either. It seems like it was pretty clear who the perp was. Uh, and it yeah. was not her. They they really led me to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, I, you know, I've, 
I think I saw some responses saying that the movie is in part leading you to think that it might be Mima committing these crimes, and it that is her, the read. other side of her. That yeah, was my okay. I actually was pretty sure it was just the villainous dude. I think I fell for the most obvious one here. Um, but on second viewing, I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense that she is the other suspect. You almost kind of have a variety of suspects in a way. What did you end up thinking when you saw her her pop idol reflection in the, the train window? Well, I I guess I did not necessarily think that, oh, it must be her committing these crimes. I guess I, I just didn't think that. As, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it. Oh, it must be. But I was like, is it? You know? Yeah, I, I was. Yeah. M- m- mostly just thinking about the fact that she is haunted by this choice she's made to mm. let go of one image and um, take up another. Um, and I, for me, that's one of the more relatable themes of the movie because so much of it is about celebrity, which surprise, surprise, I cannot really relate to that, but you can, I think anyone, yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think anybody can relate to the idea of um, just having some regret about whether or not you made the right choice mm-hmm. and moving on from one thing and into another. Um, And just feeling like you're haunted by that choice and and you'll never know if maybe that was the wrong move. I think that's very relatable. Yeah. Um, So right before that, we were talking about what we actually thought. And I think that the, the greatest thing about this film in particular and a little bit of paprika as well is that Satoshi Khan doesn't try to make you think this is who it is. Um, too too purposefully you know there there's the one character that we mentioned with the the side set eyes but for for me what he's constantly postulating is the question is it mm-hmm. and that is that's a big difference between is it and i think it is and and then you know whatever you want to say it is the wall it is the knife it is the screwdriver in the eyeball exploding the blood um mm-hmm. the question is is it who is it is it maybe her? Is it maybe him? Is that person in on it? And the the constant conflation of is it both in terms of the reality that we're experiencing and who's perpetrating these crimes is so deft. You know, there's there's really very few projects. I think the only other thing that does at this level for me the same principle is uh, Steven Soderbergh's limited series and app Mosaic. Hmm, interesting. That's one I still got to see. Uh, well, Badly. you heard it here, folks. Rescreening Mosaic. <laughs> That'll be a long one. Um, yeah, and, and on I watched it twice as well. Did you, did you watch it more than twice or just two times? Just two times. I uh, okay. I watched it uh, once last year. <laughs> and mm, then I watched yes. it, uh, and I wa- the first time I watched it was in English. And then I watched it uh, this year mm. in Japanese. Uh, just to get the the differences, I I do think that um, for your first viewing, you should go with whatever your native language is, just so you can appreciate the animation. Um, but the second time, I really wanted to pick up the distinct the um, distinctions between um, how things kind of feel more serious versus not so serious. There's a certain um, dialogue in the English version that is very uh, bad. There's no other way to put it. The uh, the dialoguing with the mom on the phone 
is a particularly mm. horrendous scene in in English, mm. and it works slightly better in in Japanese. Um, th- there's very few problems with this film, but that's one of my major ones. Yeah, yeah. So I watched it twice as well, and on first viewing, I was pretty sure it was the uh, the obvious suspect, the creepy dude, and then was surprised to discover it was the manager. But really, wasn't. Uh, I didn't have a great explanation for why he decided to make this person the villain. And, you know, obviously she is crazy. That is mm-hmm. kind of the answer. But I thought, well, thematically, maybe there's a better reason to, to make it the obsessive fan, the perp, right? Because that is, you could argue, obsession is what drives him there. But on second viewing, I guess I moved a little closer to some of the earlier conversations where the manager, Rumi, is talking about having once been a pop idol herself yes and how pop idols are falling out of favor now they don't have mass appeal it's the phrase they use and this is the better path forward for mima is to become an actress and i guess i kind of um hypothesize if i can just hypothesize about the character that it's just it potentially invalidating to her for what she once was to be falling out of favor and she's kind of doing this living vicariously through mima um having uh with Mima having been a pop star herself and that's what um has sort of uh that is partly what Rumi took pride in I think that's something that kind of destroys her to watch um what she once was being left behind by her um client her closest client um that that was my explanation for something beyond just the fact that she's just crazy I guess yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's super complex. Um, I, I don't know that I have a specific definition of exactly what caused it, but, but I would say yeah. that the, the cursory value is she's in denial about who and what she is. And this is a way for her to reclaim the way that she wants to see herself. Now, I don't know what the source of the reason is for why she wants to see herself that way or why she doesn't like herself now or any, but it's definitely one of, for me, it was a character choice built in denial um, of reality. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think you spend so much of this movie sympathizing with Mima. I think that, that sympathy ultimately is transferred a bit to that character. Mm-hmm. Um, once that revelation is done, I think it is a um, thriller, but I think it's a very sympathetic movie towards the people in these positions and their kind of it's tortured sense of identities. Yeah, there's there's a a choice that Satoshi makes at the end. Um, I, I guess we should do the legwork to get there. Um, essentially, uh, a lot of people have been murdered by someone, and then she is, she defends herself and murders the fellow with the wide set eyes as he attempts to rape her um, in the same exact scene where she was being raped or in the mm-hmm. same setting where she was playing being raped um, for the television show. And then through a series of circumstances uh, ends up being chased by Rumi at night mm-hmm. and um, Rumi uh, gets the, the wig knocked off of her and then bends over uh, glass and it penetrates the skin and she's slowly 
bleeding out, ostensibly to die. Everything about the animation language, the chasing, the dread, the terror of Satoshi's vision here is a death scene. And you just don't know for who that happens. Then she runs out in the middle of the road. A truck is coming. Everything screams death. And then he makes, I think, the boldest choice. And he has Mima save Rumi. Mm. And not only does he have her save Rumi, he has her come visit her at a mental institution at the very end of the film. And that completely changes the film um, in ways that I, I have a very hard time explaining, but are the the fulcrum for why I think this is a great film, not a good one, and for why this is a five, not a four. Yeah, I love the chasing, and I think it's partly because if, if I remember it correctly, at the start of the chasing, it's not like Mima realizes who it is necessarily and is totally lucid and saying to herself, I'm not crazy, you're crazy. I think she's still a little delusional at that point. Mm-hmm. So the idea that at, across this whole chase, both the, the person being chased and the one doing the chasing are are confused and who they're even who they even think they're looking at mima thinks she's being chased by maybe rumi but maybe it's still this ghost image of herself and rumi is obviously out of her mind um so then when mima saves rumi from being hit by the truck it's like is she what part of her is saving rumi versus saving perhaps this image of her former self Mm-hmm. Um, I think that all plays beautifully. And what I, uh, building on that, the the very end, you, you never have a scene where she is seen a psychoanalyst and processing grief and, and her mental stuff. At the end, my takeaway was um, Rumi is uh, someone who's delusional and a threat to others. And mm-hmm. Mima is someone who is delusional and isn't a threat to others. Mm. And the line between that is a very perfect blue line. Mm-hmm. Very sharply defined. Um, and th- man, what a, what a film. I am. I mean, where, where do you want to go? Let's, let's talk about more. I just don't know where to go. Um, well, one other thing I like about it w- is, I, th- I think it's aged particularly well and is now just this really great kind of encapsulation of the dawn of the internet era. Um, yes. And I-, I think that's part of what makes Mima so sympathetic is her innocence in relation to the burgeoning web and technology. You know, it's, it's almost a funny scene now when Rumi's explaining to her to how to get on the web. And she, all she says is, you double click an icon, you know, from the perspective of 2020, it's so innocent. It's so simple. And the idea that, you know, maybe celebrities have always had to deal with people, um, uh, paying attention to their private lives and that kind of thing. But that this girl has no idea how it is about to be not just, um, scrutinized her private life, but it's also about to be shared everywhere all the time. Um, which well, not is, only makes that, it so, so much more tragic. It's <clears throat> it's Rumi setting it up, which is what makes it so insidious on the second viewing, because yeah. that's your first that that should you know for if you're you know 
uh, if you've read your Agatha Christie, Poirot would, would say the first thing that, that you should realize is the, the last, the only other person that could have touched the computer is the person who's the suspect. And for yeah. some reason, I just didn't think that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just went right past me. It was, uh, th- that's such a crucial scene. I, I think, um, one of the, the most, um, intricate things about Satoshi Khan's animation in Perfect Blue and it, I believe in general, um, though Tokyo Godfathers has a little bit less of this, is how well defined and well lived in these animated characters' actual rooms are. Mm-hmm. They're very thought through. They're very intricate. They're very elaborate. There's incredible amounts of nuance. I, I, I know that people love CGI that's modern and stuff, but even if you take a great one like Soul or Inside Out and you compare the details of, of the bedrooms between that and a Satoshi Kon film, there's just so many more layers to the the wallpaper being worn or the, the paint being faded and having droplets and the shadows cast by different books um, that are that are set different ways on bookshelves. It's the most intricate I've ever seen of a bedroom. Yeah, totally. Uh, I totally forgotten about that, actually. And I didn't even really pick up on it on first viewing how Mima, you know, comes comes home one day and sees that her fish have died and then later sees that her fish are alive again. And a poster she had torn down were was is back up on the wall. And it's Rumi who's sort of reviving this side of Mima. But I thought, well, those are the two obvious ones. I'm sure there's other production it's something to call it production design other detail within this room that I'm probably not even noticing that is, you know, being restored to how the original Mima mm-hmm. had it. Um, so one the more reason to watch Mima. it a third time. Yeah. The pure Mima. Exactly. Another yes. reason to watch it again. Um, well, I mean, that's great. Yeah. Mima, but um, even her, her, uh, the television writer, there's a close up on the, the writer at one point where he's sitting at his desk. Uh, I think he's on a phone call with one of the, uh, with the agent who's a man. And behind him are these, uh, just a bookshelf, uh, with books sideways. And there's, there's like dust on certain books mm-hmm. and there's dust on the top corners of like the bookshelf. It, it's this incredibly intricate design that I've just never seen at that level before um this is really you know an artist this is a a directorial debut of the highest caliber that that i can think of you know since maybe i mean we've had hereditary since then and a few other great ones but this is this is really something yeah and just on the topic of craft i was totally oblivious to some edits and cuts on first viewing, which really just kind of go over my head in animation. I don't like my mind just doesn't even naturally watch for editing in animation, which is Mm. ridiculous. Um, But you know, there were, there's some really striking edits, some, some match cuts. Like there's this scene where um, Mima goes to the agency and she sees the two former members or the, the two girls she was in the trio with, and they're celebrating a, hot single that they put mm-hmm. out and she has this flashback, you know, to when they were nervous about their future. And but that's the thing. Um, it's not, it's okay. So they're celebrating and they're, they're pulling the poppers and she's standing there getting something. And the way that you edit out of that, it seems like she was having a flashback, but mm-hmm. that's not clearly defined, which 
at least in the first viewing, lets you wonder if she's imagining herself as still part of the group. Mm. Very possible. Yeah. And um, whether, yeah, you're right, whether it's flashback or a hallucination, I guess, or something like that, yeah. you know, she gets kind of clapped on the shoulder and you and it's um, it, you don't even know whose arm it is if it's somebody in the flashback or if it's the agent who's standing right there just because of where the edit is placed um you know just the idea of that ambiguity being put into those cuts is really cool um, um so yeah. I, I mean on top of that cut think of how that scene is framed that scene is framed from her perspective and she can only see through a doorway to the other office where she can see one girl in full profile, and then she can only see the edge of another girl. She can't see the man who's talking, and you don't know if there's a third girl in there or not. Mm-hmm. And there's there's just so much uh, intricacy to the the choices he made um, in animating that because, you, like I was saying earlier, it's not a question of this is it. It's a question of is it this constantly. And the editing is the fulcrum for why I keep asking myself, is it this? Is it this? Is yeah. it this? Just keep getting led and led and led. And I don't know what reality is and what reality isn't. And um, it, but it's deft enough to keep me going. You, you know, that great scene where she's running away from a guy who asked her if she signed and mm. then catches up to her to be a model. And then all of a sudden you zoom out from the monitor that, that is showing you the image that the camera's capturing for the TV show. That's just so deaf. Like I had, yep. I had, had assumed we were at another um, grocery store scene walking across crosswalks. I had no clue that, that that was the television show at the time. Yeah. And I'll give one more and you can keep going if you'd like to, too. It's when she first sees, I think this image of her, former self and she's on the train and we get a lot of those great shots on the train where we see the reflection of herself Mm -hmm. in the mirror and another train passes by a second train and it wipes away her current image and it replaces it with the pop idol image who just says one line or something like that and then the next train comes by and wipes that one away um just great stuff love it i think satoshi might like trains what do you think probably there's a lot of good training it's a little bit crucial for the tokyo godfathers Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, yeah, I, that's probably as good a place to end it as any. Um, do you have a favorite scene, Michael? Boy, that's hard. That that was actually one I was leaning towards was just that first vision of Mima's former self because that just caught me off guard. Um, I'll go with that one. That really is kind of one of my favorite images of the movie. I think it's just so beautifully concise and the color is so great when that train comes by. Um, that's up there. What about you? That's incredibly hard. I'm going to say that whatever I say right now is not uh, empirically or objectively correct. It's just what I'm saying right now. And what I'm going to go with is the entire sequence where she walks into a room and doesn't know why it's just like her room or who's maintaining that room. Mm. And then someone bursts in and a fight ensues and she has to um, try to get from one side of the porch to another. It's mm-hmm. it's a very deft sequence, perfect tone management, and it, it leads up to that great chase scene. But I think that 
the amount of mystery that you walk into that room with on your first viewing and the amount of confusion you have and then everything just bursts um, at the seams. I, I think it's an uh, eloquent and excellent um, punctuation mark to the the beginning of the end of the film. I'm right there with you. All right. That is Rescreening Perfect Blue. We'll be back next month with Once Upon a Time in the West from Sergio Leone. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't.